Meanwhile, I'm looking for a great warrior. Wars <laughs> not make one great. <laughs> wow, this place is great. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Uh, well, welcome back to the Hall of Greatness. Uh, we are already going back on a promise. This is going to be our second episode, and we promised we were going to talk more about greatness in this episode. But we decided instead we were going to talk about something a little more lighthearted. Let's talk about what makes great live music, and specifically a live album. How many times, JB, do you go looking into your music collection and you go grab like a live album of one of your favorite bands? 0.5% of the time. And and I think I think to your point, it's because I think live albums are just structured in a very different way. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that people have really laid out criteria of what makes a good live album. Now I will preface and say there are good live songs and we're sure. going to talk about we're going to talk about those in a bit but i i definitely think there's some criteria that would make a consistent live album or at least would make live album listening a little more uh, involved and entertaining right so what do you, what do you think those are so i was thinking about it and you and i kind of talked about some things but i i feel like there's five criteria for a really great live album and and i know people probably will get tired of lists between us but i think there's five things so let me introduce them and then let's go back because i want to get your feedback on them and see what you think so the first one is five things first one is obviously the sound quality oh yeah right i'm talking like the opposite of from the money banks of the wishcock right (laughs) right two i think the band has to be relatively fond of each other in the live space Ooh, good point what I mean by that is they don't have to be talking fondly to each other, but they have to be musically in tune or interpersonally in tune or something like that. And I think back to when you and I played music uh, mm-hmm. and, and to what to, to my friend and I play now, I knew what you were going to do, right? You right. and I couldn't, we couldn't fool each other. I was going to do something. I'd look at you and you'd go, I got it. I'm going to go up a half step. That's fine. Here, here's what we'll do. So I, I think that's part of what I mean. It's not just the fondness for each other as people, but also um, o- other kinds of things like that. Uh, right. Third thing, I think there is something to be said for the material. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean material like you play it exactly like the album per se, but I think you have to be consistent to your library of uh, body of work, but also throw in some improvisation or something unexpected. Uh, and and you brought up a really good point about Eric Clapton that I want you to bring up again yeah. when we go back through these. Fourth, we'll fourth, I think there has to be some sort of crowd integration or banter. Mm-hmm. Uh, quick story, I think the, my favorite example of this is John Mayer. I went to the John Mayer concert on a whim. I didn't know much about him. But what I found out is that this guy had more stories, more entertaining and interesting stories about his life and how he wrote songs than anyone I've ever seen before. And uh, you and I go to a lot of concerts. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of those things where bringing the crowd in, bantering with the crowd, talking to the crowd is is really important on both an album and in person. Agreed. Agreed. Fifth one, and then we'll go back to starting with sound quality. I think the fifth one is it's really cool to have good covers or surprise guests. And a lot of bands are opposed to good covers 
I don't like to do other people's libraries, but they're really good about bringing in surprise guests or others. So I think there's a good combo of let's talk about covers and surprise guests as the fifth component. I think the first four are the most crucial, but the fifth is kind of like that glue that brings everything together. So let's go back to number one and say, Andy, sound quality, your perception your perception of that as making a great live album. What do you think? I think you've got to be intentional about this is going to be an album or a performance that we're putting out there. There are too many albums that uh, you get that maybe they're bootlegs. Um, they were just never really intended to be to be recorded in that way. And they sound off. Um, they're... There are others where they're very meticulously put together and they sound great. They capture an essence of who this band is and what they're trying to do. And I think uh, I'll compare two of one of my most favorite uh, live albums is Show by The Cure. I love The Cure. I really like Show. It's an album I can listen to front to back. And that's one of the things I like about it. The Cure's Unplugged album, awful. Really? Awful. Awful. And there's a reason why you can only get it on bootleg. It sounds terrible, and they mess up, and it is it is really not good. Um, so, uh, and it's not that The Cure are a bad live band. It's just, you know, they're, they're playing a letter to Elise, and it's got that really nice, like... Uh, a piano part and they're playing it literally on a toy piano in there and it sounds tinny as hell okay. and just like what who told you this was a good idea this is okay. awful what no so sound quality that's like a bare minimum it's got to sound good so you brought up a really interesting point when we were talking about this before there was a wave of live albums when we were younger that didn't mm-hmm. really work so well. And then MTV Unplugged happened. Yeah. And it was sort of like MTV Unplugged changed the whole spectrum of what a live album is. Now, granted, you had really great live albums in classic rock days where, you know, you're, you're live at uh, Fillmore East with Allman Brothers. Some of your you know, song remains the same. Floyd, you know, you had really great live albums from bands. Frampton who I think comes alive. Yeah, no. Yeah. Who are, well, that was what great Frampton comes alive. But <laughs> yet that was like. I mean, it's the, just, the joke in Wayne's world, they, they gave it out in the suburbs like uh, packets of Tide, you know, it's your, and it's a great Mitch Hedberg joke about about not knowing a, an artist's body of work that you have to work next to with Peter Frampton. But <laughs> I think I think you that point of, you know, most of the great live albums I will listen to now are MTV Unplugged albums, because yeah. one, I know the sound quality is going to be really good. And two, I know the sound is going to be consistent to the band. Like you and I talked about this, my favorite MTV Unplugged albums are Live and Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains, That's Pearl Jam. One. Yeah, the, the, the in my genre, those make a lot of sense. The REM Unplugged is really good. I really like some of the R&B and hip-hop MTV Unplugged. I thought the LL Cool J Unplugged was great because it had great sound quality and brought a new depth to LL Cool J sound. I really liked the Mariah Carey one. I'm sure I'm going to take flack for that from some people, but it's a great unplug because it, it captures the sound uh, of, of her 
of her boys. And, and, and they yeah. sent that out to, into the suburbs with packets of Tide in the early 90s. I think they, all they, of us know that. They might have they might have Frampton that one too. But yeah. um, I, again, I think I think the sound changed with MTV Unplugged, and then they did MTV Plugged, and then you know Hell Freezes Over from the Eagles. I mean, I mean, it really changed how on uh, how live albums happened because right. of uh, of that of that function and i think that's going to come into play in some of these other things where you start bringing in covers and special guests because it gives you a new venue to expand on your sound as a band right. so i th- i think you and i both have tons of of albums where it sounds great and tons where it sounds poor and again, there is that bootleg angle, but I think I think sound quality is number one. So yeah. let me move to number two, because I think this is part and parcel of quality. What do you think about the band being relatively fond of each other or relatively understand? Like one of the, uh, I, I hate to keep bringing up John Mayer, but the John Mayer trio album where they do live and you got, you know, a fantastic bass player, a fantastic drummer, John Mayer. It's like they already had played together for 30 years because mm-hmm. They're all studio musicians. You know, right. they know each other. They they they've got each other's back. They can just riff off of each other and go toe to toe for hours. But I think there's something to be said for a band that has played together forever, um, bringing an extra layer of interest uh, to the audience. So, what do you think about this? Like, what are your bands that you can think of that that have this quality that that make live albums better? Uh, I I think I mean it. I think it's kind of based in the idea that rock is based in jazz and blues. And those are very much meant to be live experiences that are based on improvisation and musicians who can work with one another and read one another and just, you know, go through the, the key changes or whatever. Like that, that would seem to be like, Oh, James Brown, he just like tells the band, I'm going to do like start playing this in this key and and keep up. And, you know, that's that's what they do. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the great counterexample where a band is not like in their best form and they uh, they're not following each other. And, and the recording suffers because of that. Can you or where they're just going through the motions? I don't know. There isn't something that springs to my mind, but I don't know if you you can think of one. You know, it's a really good question, Andy. I, I can't think of any other than all of the fights that I know the Rolling Stones had a ton of fights and, and sometimes yeah. seem to affect their shows. Guns and Roses. But you told me about Oasis. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, there. Yeah, there is a uh, an Oasis. It was I want to say it was unplugged, but it might have been another like live at MTV Studios or something. But uh, Liam Gallagher refused to go on stage, just would not go out. And so they're like, okay, well, what do we do? And so, like, just Noel played the whole set and sang all the songs without his a whole brother. So I guess that showed him. I don't know. <laughs> well, and fortunately, that, that became probably the impetus for Liam Gallagher's High Flying Birds, which is a really good band. Um, but I guess once you realize you don't need your the lead singer, you can do whatever you want. I, the other right. one I was, Andy and I were fortunate enough to go to a show in the late nineties, which was called bash, uh, and, and cake and blur headlined. And I, I never got the sense that cake 
I, I can't tell because they just kind of stand there. They seem like they're having fun, but I can't tell. I've seen them twice, and both times I, I can't tell if they're having fun or not when they're playing. How could they not have fun? They're like <laughs> their music is so infectiously fun to listen Great. to. Like, but, but I remember that at Bash, going, no, "These guys just don't seem like they're having fun," and right. they weren't playing a song that everybody wanted to hear. And I remember there were a lot of things being thrown, and finally a shoe got thrown or a sandal and it hit the lead singer and he just walked off. And I remember it was probably only like four or five songs in and the band just sort of kept playing for a minute or so. And then they just sort of stopped and shuffled off sideways, kind of like a South park, you know, (laughs) but, but I remember that being the specific example of where, Something ruined a live album or a live show, but but probably not band related. Your Oasis one is is probably the best. In fact, I think Oasis broke up because they fought backstage at another right. show, and and Noel broke Liam's guitar or something, and then they just Oasis was done and no show. Yeah, he was like, you yeah, know, I'm doing all the work, and so I'm going to do it and make all the money myself. So okay, yeah, if that's how you feel about it. Then sure, but I think. Go ahead. I think taking slightly away from the album piece, you and I both have been to many live shows where the bands liking each other made for a much better show. So, yeah. So that would translate directly into the album piece, of course, as well. So for sure. Yeah. I've seen like opening bands who I'd never heard of or had heard like one of their songs before came out and charmed the heck out of everybody just because you could tell they were having a really good time with each other. Yeah. And, you know, and we'll like, I, I saw this band blue open for someone else and they're like, Hey, we have an out, a song on the Spider-Man album, check it out or whatever. And, and it's like, okay. And then like right in the middle of it, they broke down and started uh, riffing into cashmere by Led Zeppelin. And they're like, Oh, these guys are actually pretty cool. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I like this, uh, which yeah. goes to your fifth point, which, which will, come to in a in another minute yeah so let's go to the let's go to number three so another piece that i have is again the material uh i I think having seen bands that i like a number of times whether it's depeche mode or the old stone temple pilots or uh, whoever it is even crystal method or techno bands like that there is an expectation of a band to play a certain number of songs which people are familiar with per se Uh, but i think there's something to be said for even when they play old material, doing something new with it, uh, you know, adding an instrument or playing it acoustic or something like that. I remember the first Stone Temple Pilot show when they played it, the David O. McKay Center in Orem. Yes. <laughs> and they brought, they played about an hour 20 or something, and then they brought an acoustic stage down from the ceiling. And they played a four-song acoustic set, and then the acoustic stage went back up, and they played another half hour, like an encore. And I remember going, not only is that cool that they played, you know, Pretty Penny and uh, Still Remains and stuff uh, acoustic, but how cool to stop a show and bring a set down from the top. So, So they played all of the hits that we wanted, but they also improvised and threw in either the same material with a different vibe or like we'll talk about uh, later on, you know, slightly different material or material from other bands. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned Clapton and I, you know, unplugged had been happening 
it wasn't that huge. And then Clapton came out with this unplugged album that suddenly went to number one out of nowhere. This was Clapton like in the midst of his like tears in heaven, like weepy acoustic phase. So it was really kind of perfect for him. And then in the middle of the set, he's like, see if you can spot this one. And he starts playing this blues version of Layla, which, you know, like for me, it's like that song is that scene from Goodfellas, right? Right. Like that's, you know, that's what I think of when I think of Layla. And here's something totally different. And, uh, you know, it was it was just so great because he he like changed the genre of one of his biggest hits and it worked so well. Um, you know, Clapton famously did that album, is it 27 Nights? Is the, I say famously, and then I can't remember the name of the album. But he recorded, like, the same show, you know, 27 nights in a row, and then took the best versions of it and put it on this album. Oh, yeah, 24. 24 and nights. 24. Remember, because it has nights. the drawing of him on the cover, I believe. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, like, and those, those are good, too, because he's trying to do something different with with his material and when you have a back catalog of three or four decades i think that's incumbent upon a band like the the worst thing you can do is just come out and kind of be boring and and play the same thing that you can listen to on your ipod and that's a really cool example because i remember he did a bunch of different instrumental sets with those like he had a four piece one night and then he'd have a nine piece the next night then he'd have an orchestra right so so that is a really great example of how do you keep your material but do new things with it and and now i remember that was like a two-hour live hour i think it had two sides you know two discs yeah so um there was no concert for bangladesh but you know well you got to start somewhere right um right so so I think material is a good one, and I think that's that's pretty consistent with our expectation. You know, you, you got to play some of the hits that the people want. Um, I think when you get to a point as a band, you know what your top tens, your top twenties are, and, and you try to create as much of a mix as you can while celebrating whatever your new album is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that that's always the rough thing for a band. I remember the Simpsons episode where Bachman Turner Overdrive is playing at the fair. Right. And they're like, let's play something from our new album. And Homer's like, boo, taking care of business, you know, and I think every band has to suffer through that a little bit. But but I'm all for some new material on a live album uh, or even a live show. Uh, But I I do like to have some interspersed, you know, make sure there's a good swath of the the music I I grew up loving or, or, or those kinds of things. So. Right. And I mentioned 101 by Depeche Mode being one of my more favorite live albums, pretty much only because at the time, like that was a Depeche Mode greatest hits. Right. It just happened to be live. And there was no greatest hits and, you know, for another few years after that. And so like for me, that worked because it's like, here's everything I want on two discs. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it wasn't because it was so much more different than um, uh, or expanded the material so much, but it was very comprehensive and I really liked it. Yeah. And, and the things they did, you know, they did a lot of layering with whether they start with Pimp and, and layer it into a, a you know, other songs. And I, I think it was really, right. it was really great. I, I felt the same way kind of about Stop Making Sense, um, sure. which, which again was sort of a, a greatest hits plus 
some really cool side stuff that, that they'd been working on, or at least different versions of things that they've been working on. Um, at least in my mind. And, and also to have it filmed backstage, you know, three live shows that they pulled it from, I think is really cool. So, okay. So let's go to one that I know is going to be near and dear to your heart, which is the crowd integration slash banter component. Oh yeah. I think this is, this is really crucial, especially at a live show. I think it's also important on a live album because again, it brings people closer to that show. So, so you had a really good example uh, of Ben Folds at, at the crowd yeah. integration. Yeah, Ben Folds Live. This is one of my favorite live albums, and it's just him and a piano. And so he's like, hey, it's just me and a piano, so I'm going to divide the audience into thirds, and I'm going to teach you each a part that you're going to sing during the breakdown. And then, uh, like, you guys are going to be the saxophones, you guys are going to be the trumpets, and then... Uh, and then he starts playing Army, and during the the instrumental part, the crowd sings along, and they're all playing their they're all singing their own part, and it's like that's so genius, and it's so easy, <laughs> and you're just like, why don't more bands do this? It's it's uh, it's really simple, and he did it not just there, but he did it on uh, a couple of other tracks too. Yeah, and and we have kind of the the prototypical uh, example of you know, the rock band who wants you to sing along like, Oh, Bon Jovi will come out and say, okay, you guys take the chorus for me or whatever it is. Uh, Surprisingly, when cake was at Red Butte, they did the same thing where they sort of divided people up into halves and okay, you sing this part and you sing this part. And a lot of bands will do that at a place like Red Butte. But I think it goes back to what you said about the style of music. If you have a really catchy, like if you're a Better Than Ezra or a Cake or a Ben Folds, I think your style of music is more conducive to, okay, I've got a part, I've got a spoken part over the the sung part, or I've got three harmony parts because the music is conducive to that and you can set it up a little bit Mm -hmm. that way. Whereas I think if if you're singing... Uh, when the levee breaks, it's probably a little more difficult to go, okay, you guys do the harmonica and you guys sing. Right. So, so I think you raise a really good point, which, and maybe that's something to be said for bands recording live albums is w- try to have some of your music that is at a, t- at a, at something where people can be more involved in, um, in that regard. I mean, even more serious bands. Uh, how how do you bring in something where the crowd can get involved in your music? Right, and the like the other example from Ben Folds Live is uh, kind of the contrary of that, where they're doing this really slow number called "Not the Same," and uh, he divides the audience and he teaches them like you're going to do this harmony and you're going to do this harmony that normally comes in on the uh, uh, during the chorus and. Uh, just had them do that and it's like okay that was not something like the the army horn part makes a lot of sense and everybody knows army that's one of your big hits you're pulling deep from the back catalog and taking a minute to teach people your song and like have them sing it along with you it's like wow i i think yeah you're probably right there's only certain people that could really do that yeah but some people could not. Well, and, and let me funnel that into my example of not getting good crowd integration. And this is, 
as you know, one of my pet peeves, which is singers who do not sing their songs. Okay. And you and I both have the Counting Crows album and we, you and I both love Counting Crows, think they're great songwriters, Mm -hmm. but the live album where he does not sing, but rather does a weird spoken word talking sort of version of Counting Crows. And I know I have friends who are big fans of that album, but to me, if you can't sing along, then it makes it very difficult for me to be part of your show. If I can't you right. know, hum along with the melody or sing along or scream at the top of my lungs the, the songs that are meaningful to me, uh, I think that's that's difficult. So the Counting Crows thing is very difficult for me, whereas you know the Verve Pipe um, I wrote a meaningful song. Feel free to sing along with as much of it as you want. You know, I'll step back if I feel like you're really hitting the notes that I, you know, you're really hitting a meaningful tone for me versus the I'm going to talk along. That one just for some reason that just drives me nuts. Well, I don't get it. Like every time I've seen Adam Duritz perform live with Counting Crows, he sings the song differently. And it's not like I'm doing this. Uh, like because this is how I really wanted to do it and we just gussied it up for the studio version or it's like a Cobain where you know Butch Vig and Steve Albini can make me sound good in my vocals but my normal vocals are more raw than that right uh, it's it's just like either he's really high and doesn't care about what's going on or I don't know. I don't know what is going on with Counting Crows, but I love that band and I cannot stand to go see them. Live. They're on tour right now. And we, one of the things that inspired this was I'm like, should I go see Counting Crows? And they're, they're coming to, to Red Butte in Salt Lake too. And we're like, should we go? Should we? And I'm just like, uh, I, at this point I might go, because here in Austin, live is opening for them. Oh, good. I might go and see live. Yeah. Live is a good live band. They put on a great show. And uh, I might leave before uh, before Counting Crows. Well, and, and you and I are going to have a, a future podcast about the supply-demand uh, cost break of, of where a concert is worth it. Uh, and the yeah. difference between Austin and Red Butte is Counting Crows, I think, is at 90 bucks now for Red Butte. And... Uh, there's a, not a lot of concerts I would see for $90, but stay tuned for a future podcast where we discuss, you know, what band would we fly overseas to see no matter what the cost versus what bands would we only see locally? Because I think, right. I think it's really good to have in your mind, who is your penultimate band that you will go anywhere for? Um, because I think it says a lot about, you know, w- what your musical style is and, and what you want to do. So, Stay tuned for that. Okay, last one. Good covers slash surprise guests. So oh, yeah. I've got a list of mine, but why don't you give me your favorite good covers, surprise guests, and why you think that's valuable to a live album? So where my mind goes immediately is Nirvana Unplugged, uh, which is is not overall like the most greatest album, but uh, it surprised the heck out of me when they started singing The Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie. And, um, you know, as a uh, very impressionable, like, 15-year-old who, when I first heard that, first of all, I didn't think that, like, this cool, hardcore, 
you know, grunge band could be into David Bowie. Like I thought David Bowie was like old people music at that time. And uh, it's funny that I have Kurt Cobain and, and Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear to thank for introducing me to a, a what then became a lifelong love of Bowie. Um, but I love that. And it was completely out of left field. Uh, right. uh, on a similar note, um, the Foo Fighters live album, Skin and Bones, which is essentially an unplugged album, but just not called unplugged. Right. Uh, uh, they cover a Nirvana song, Marigold, <laughs> which is funny, uh, you know, because that was the only song that uh, that Grohl ever sang. And it was on a B-side. And so he's like, let's let's do this and let's put it out there. Uh, I just thought that was a really great uh, way to go go back and honor that back catalog. That's really interesting. I, I do remember, I think for me, a lot of the, the meat puppets, you know, I had never heard of the meat puppets before uh, the unplugged album. So that was kind of a cool mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I, I go back to some of the, the random ones, like you said, where, you know, you listen to a live heart album and all of a sudden they're playing over the hills and far away or black dog. And she's mm-hmm. absolutely killing it. Or you hear John Mayer play message in a bottle or Pearl Jam playing uh, "Rockin' in the Free World" and uh, you know other Neil Young songs, which cannot be mentioned here due to their title, uh, or even Joe Cocker playing "With a Little Help from My Friends," or uh, yeah, which is a great, great live version. Um, I, I, I think of like you mentioned, even with Twenty Four Nights with Eric Clapton, you know, really good classic rock people would play a ton of blues songs. They right. would always throw in blues covers or things that other people wrote for them, and. Um, and that's why you know Clapton later works with JJ Kale or or BB King and and has these right. great great songs because he played them all the time and uh, and then we will of course get into this at a, another future podcast where we talk about great cover songs you know Jimi Hendrix playing all along the Watchtower is that really a cover considering it was two or three years later those kinds of things but still when they when they play them live. Uh, it's 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 a whole new experience, and it's it's something right. not to use experience in the Jimi Hendrix sense because that's exactly. <laughs> but um, I, I think another thing besides the good covers, a good cover has to be uh, like live playing Supernatural and Unplugged, or Stone Temple Pilots playing oh, yeah. Andy Warhol. Um, I think a good cover also has to kind of match the material, like we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. I don't think you can come out as live and play respect by aretha franklin or you you can't be um pearl jam and come out and play uh, you know it's got to match your catalog a little bit it's got to it's got to challenge your catalog but make sense that you're playing it does that does that make sense right. um, yeah totally yeah i don't i don't think corn can come out and play uh piano man it just like it, there's things about that that i i think a good cover matches your material uh, and and adds depth to your skill set or or your your uh, library. If that right, and I, yeah, and I think it should be a band where that this is something that you love and that inspired you and really works with you. Uh, you know, a, another great example is um, Toad the Wet Sprocket. For years, would always play uh, Ziggy Stardust. Oh, okay, great, great example. Like right. There's a direct line between Bowie and Toad, and um, and that that always worked because they really liked that. I think the other thing is 
if if it is unexpected, but it still works somehow. Uh, an example, uh, you and I have both heard from uh, K-Rock's Almost Acoustic Christmas, where right. uh, Stone Temple Pilots starts singing Vince Giraldi, Christmas Time is Here, from the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Right, right. <laughs> That's just... That's just funny. It's just yeah. silly. Well, and but it somehow works. Yeah, and my favorite Christmas song is actually Dawkins doing Santa Claus is coming to town because that's there is no <laughs> greater Christmas song. But but yeah, I think you have some some venues of adjustment, and uh, I don't know a ton of of hip hop and R and B covers that people do. So you know, feel free to weigh in those of you who have really good uh, hip hop or R and B covers that that I may not be aware of. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, yeah, I think as long as it stays pretty close to your to your library. Now, I do want to add one other thing. I think surprise guests can augment your material just as much as a good cover. And my perfect example Indeed. is bringing out Amy Lee to sing Freak on a Leash by Korn, because I think mm-hmm. it takes a song that would not traditionally be something that would be that moving and adds a voice that, that makes it that way. And I don't know if you can think of any other surprise guests um, other than like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where they they bring out every you know everybody brings out Pearl Jam to play with some you know, Pearl Jam and Bon Jovi or Pearl Jam and Springsteen or um, oh I, I was thinking of the Roy Orbison though where he had Springsteen on guitar um, right and, you know things like that where you have these surprise guests and you're like oh this is just going to be fantastic Scott Weiland uh, playing with uh, Robbie Krieger and the rest of the Doors uh, at their induction to uh, the Rock and Roll oh, Hall. Perfect. Like that's that's a great example. This isn't this isn't the the perfect example of that. Uh, but uh, soon after George Harrison passed away, they did a tribute concert to George Harrison, and it was jam packed with so many amazing people. And uh, the final, the final performance, which uh, went viral again right after Prince passed away, uh, because it included Prince uh, on a version of "While My Guitar Gently Weeps," that included Prince, wow. Tom Petty, Eric Clapton, a, a bunch of other people. It was just like Jeff Lynne. But but <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a lot of those where we're harnessing new lead singers, you know, the, the queen bringing in Adam Lambert or Paul Rogers or, you know, you know people that match their sound style really well. Um, and some of those mm-hmm. turn into, you know, new albums or, I mean, f- for heaven's sake, Axl Rose tours with ACDC and he kills it. I actually think he does a pretty good job. So I think there's always something to be said for a surprise guest. So now Andy Wilson, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. And I'm going to wrap this up by asking you the five best live albums you can think of right now. It can be your okay. fa- it can be your favorite, your favorite or yeah. the greatest live albums you can think of. I'm going to go with uh, Ben Folds Live, which I already mentioned. Okay, uh, Johnny Cash Live at Folsom Prison. Okay, Toad the Wet Sprocket Acoustic Dance Party. Okay, The Cure Show. Okay, uh, Alice in Chains Unplugged. Okay, okay, yeah. What is the common thread between all five of those, do you think, that makes them your greatest live albums? Five artists that I really love in, um, with the exception of The Cure, uh, they're in unexpected or sort of different locations or venues. Uh, and I think that brings a different energy to their music. Okay. Um, the, like the Toad one is an acoustic album. 
uh, I mean, the unplugged ones are obviously acoustic albums. Um, the Cure one, I think that that one just it's because it has emotional re- resonance uh, for me. It was you know an album I really liked at at a certain time in my life, and it it hit me, and I could I could listen to it. And there, I'll, I'll say one thing about Show and why I liked it. Uh, they that was taken mostly from the Cure's Wish tour, and I think that Wish is overall kind of an overproduced album. That's the one that has Friday I'm in Love on it. I think it's kind of too poppy, maybe a little too glammy for my tastes, uh, for how I generally feel about The Cure, which I think of The Cure as being like punk rock plus synthesizers plus depression. Okay. You know, they, they strip it down and a lot of it works and they bring in other great songs from Disintegration and the way that the songs all flow into each other. It just it just works. Okay. And uh, I feel like there's an emotional journey there. Okay. All right. So I will give you my five. All right. I would say a, a tie between Stone Temple Pilots and Live Unplugged. I would say mm-hmm. uh, In Tune and On Time, which is a DJ Shadow live album. I would say uh, there's a Morchiba Live in Germany album, which is really good. I'm going to give you the Jay-Z Linkin Park mashup album, which I think Mm. is phenomenally good as a live album because of what they managed to do in such a short amount of time. And then there's a ton that would fall in five, whether it's Kiss Alive, uh, BB King's Live at the Royal... Uh, Almond mm-hmm. Brothers at the Fillmore East. Uh, I mean, there's so many good albums that do exactly what you said, which is they bring new life to an artist. Uh, I mean, even Depeche Mode 101 or Songs of Faith and Devotion Live. I mean, these are albums that uh, bring an extra layer to a set of songs and a, and a group that uh, we like. Now, the the, the Jay-Z Lincoln Park, and I think, is really interesting because it's one of those I don't want to say genre bending, but it really is in, in the sense of they, they, they took two very discrepant pieces of music and smushed them together and did it live. Uh, and Mm -hmm. I think there won't be very many bands that will be able to do that anymore uh, with such, uh, discrepant styles. And people will say, well, Lincoln park is sort of hip hop. Well, um, I, I mean, call that as it may, it was still an amazing feat. And and I'd say that Jay Z is probably more melody forward than a lot of hip hop artists. So I, I think that kind of lends itself to sort of like a a, a pop hip hop punk uh, metal. Yeah, and, uh, style and you, as well. you see other people doing that, like Kanye with Daft Punk and Pharrell with. Sure. Yeah, I mean that's that that's I think something that's very common uh, and and a good thing in across different genres but to do a whole album of it i think was really interesting so uh i I, you know all of you when you listen to this feel free to weigh in uh but above all you know think about those great live albums that you've got and and what really makes them uh, important to you and how they tie into your you know what really makes them great and and just celebrate and revel in the fact that you know we have so many talented bands that make such great live music and uh, that we can all be part of it. So really cool things. But I think that the only thing I want to I want to point out is that both of us said Alice in Chains unplugged and and what a weird album that is. You know, the, <laughs> I I was gonna say Mad Seasons Live at the Moor uh, as a great live mm-hmm. album too, but I felt like I felt like that was just such a sad album um, because nah. it you know I don't I don't like 
albums where it's the last work from a great artist. So uh, most of you probably have albums like that where it was the last one of a great artist or uh, you know your favorite band before they broke up. But um, I mean, there's good things about that too. It's just it's always hard for me to put those at the top. Well, and Alice in Chains Unplugged felt very triumphant because Lane Staley's like, this is the greatest show we've played in five years, and oh, the the only right. show, <laughs> right. and like. <laughs> and it's like it's great that they were you know able to pull themselves together uh albeit briefly and at what i felt to be kind of their peak creativity yeah. and uh and do that and to try and pull off a song like sludge factory acoustic yeah. did not work did not work but the audacity i, I gotta good, give you points good risks good, good risks yeah yep. good risks so uh, we, we will end how uh, I hope we end most episodes here with this week in greatness. JB, what is great this week for you? you know, I was thinking about this as, as I watch playoff games and, and baseball games throughout the year. I really think it's great that sports teams bring home a military member and surprise their family at the game. And I know people think it's cheesy or, uh, you know, I've actually heard some people call it manipulative, but I just think it's really neat that, you know, they, they bring someone home or they surprise the family at the park. Uh, you know, they get to, they get to be applauded. The, 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 the family gets to be applauded for their service and they get to go back and watch a game, you know, maybe meet some of the favorite players, things like that. I just think it's a really cool thing. Sports makes a lot of money. There's a lot of profit. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in sports these days. Uh, but every once in a while, I think yeah. they do something right uh, and and celebrate uh, someone who who makes a great sacrifice for for everyone. So I, I that's my this week in greatness. And I know it cascades among lots of weeks, but that's the one I was thinking of this week. How about for you? That's really great. Um, well, last week after we finished recording, I went and saw that Donald Glover, uh, in his persona as Childish Gambino, had dropped a uh, not a music video, but a live grenade of pop culture out there. Uh, his video for This Is America, uh, which he did at the same time that he was hosting Saturday Night Live. And I was just blown away by that uh, in a way that uh, a music video or any short film I don't think has affected me in years, huh. decades, probably. Wow. I, I was just, I, it, it was so beautiful and it was so visceral and it was so layered and it was uh, so uh, definite. Every single thing in there was meticulously laid out and it had a purpose and a reason and it was hard to watch, intentionally hard to watch. And uh, I just, I'm like, damn, this guy's a genius. Yeah. And uh, I, I was like, uh, man, Troy from Community done good. <laughs> so I was uh, very uh, just blown away by that. And I'm like, that, that is true greatness. And nice. using a platform that you have to bring up these issues that are important and uh you know uh, tr uh dominate the conversation for several days uh that i just i i felt that was amazing nice everybody keep looking for great things this week um we'll, we'll be catching you next week for another discussion about greatness 
So next week, yeah, we will be back with another episode uh, talking about more great things. Until then, feel free to leave us comments, hit us up on social media, and tell us what's great in your life and other topics that we should cover. Until then, I'm Andy. And I'm JB. And this could have been worse. Meanwhile, shut this off. Shut these all off. I'm warning you, turning off these machines would be extremely hazardous. I'll tell you what's hazardous. You're facing federal prosecution for at least a half a dozen environmental violations. Now, either you shut off these beams or we shut them up for you. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. You shut that thing down and we are not going to be held responsible for whatever happens. No, we won't be. Shut it off. Hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice. They never fail to be kind. Don't shut it off. I'm warning you. I, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not interested in your opinion. Just shut it off. Could be worse. And to make a long story short, too late. It's worse. Cut it off.